mental health professionals establish the presence of a psychiatric illness? This question can fill textbooks, but this is not about becoming an expert on the subject. It is about patients or whoever is interested in this topic, understanding the mechanics of the diagnosis, especially getting rid of the idea that psychiatry is so subjective that anybody's opinion is equally good when it comes to identifying and categorizing this phenomenon called mental illness. Psychiatry is like uh, the gravitational force. If you deny its existence, you do it at your own peril. Although tempting, I'm not even going to get into the bizarre controversy whether psychiatric illness exists. I will let the two tomboys, Tom Sass and Tom Cruise, wrestle with this topic. For you out there for whom the reference to Thomas Sass is too obscure, he is an old psychiatrist who apparently did not crack a textbook in this field recently. Therefore, he still believes that psychiatry is psychoanalysis. The classic straw man strategy. You define psychiatry as something easy to knock uh, down and attack, like psychoanalysis, which is just a crude, outdated representation of what psychiatry really is, and you attack it. He made quite a name for himself, denying the existence of a medical specialty that he himself claims to be part of. Now that I think about it, this might be a profound philosophical conundrum that he is proposing. And maybe Dr. Sass' position is uh, so intelligent that it appears idiotic to most. But I'm not going to go into this rather easy debate. This controversy is like a fight between Mike Tyson and Newt Gingrich, something that everybody would like to see, but whose outcome everybody knows in advance, and at the end will make spectators feel that it was a monumental waste of time. It is indeed quite surprising that while the concept of madness or mental illness is universal among all human societies and has been around probably as long as the concept of physical illness has been around, there are still people out there who argue its existence. I will show you the way in which we establish the presence of psychiatric illness and I will let you decide whether psychiatric illness exists or is just a figment of the psychiatrist's imagination or maybe a conspiracy of the medical profession to make some extra bucks inventing a field that does not exist? I don't know, it's up to you to decide. Let's start with the basic and simple. There are two conditions that define illness, past or present dysfunction and past or present distress. There are some psychiatric illnesses, but very few, that do not need the presence of either dysfunction or distress. This is the case of the diagnosis of substance dependence. We do not need dysfunction or distress to diagnose this illness. We do not want to go, I do not want to go into technicalities, but in principle, the diagnosis of substance dependence is given when any three out of seven signs are present during the same 12 months period, not necessarily simultaneous. You can diagnose this illness, substance dependence, if a patient presents let's say tolerance, withdrawal, and consuming alcohol or, sorry, addictive substances in quantities higher than intended. So there is no present or past distress in this definition, no present or past dysfunction among these requirements, but still you can diagnose this psychiatric illness based on these three manifestations. This is because we make uh, the statistically reasonable assumption that distress or dysfunction is very likely to follow in the future, even if not present now. 
Of course, there are rare cases in which patients seem to meet the criteria for substance dependence and still report no distress and still be able to function, even for decades. But these are indeed exceptional situations. In psychiatry, one cannot diagnose an illness based on future distress or future impairment of functioning. In general medicine, though, there are numerous situations in which an illness is based on laboratory findings without any current dysfunction or distress but there are still defined as illnesses because there is the implicit assumption of future problems later down the line, sometimes in a matter of days, sometimes in a matter of weeks, months, years, or even decades. With very, very rare exceptions, psychiatric diagnosis does not make bets about the future. We need present or past dysfunction, present or past distress to make a diagnosis. We do not label someone as mentally ill because we believe that the mind of a certain person is of such nature as to cause problems at some future date. For example, any psychiatrist who would examine Stalin's personality could tell you that uh, he meets many of the criteria of per paranoid personality disorder, and most would have predicted a lot of trouble for him in the future. But he cannot be labeled as having a psychiatric illness because there is no evidence that at any point in time, while alive, he experienced any sustained subjective distress. And very few can argue uh, for the idea that he was a dysfunctional person. He ruled the biggest country on the surface of the earth. He, uh, despite many people wanting him dead, he died in his bed of natural causes. Some historians might feel that there is evidence that he was helped to die a few hours or a few days sooner rather than later, but the official version is that he actually excelled in his main role of surviving and defeating all his opponents despite massive injustices and crimes he perpetrated. In one word, he was able to function at very high levels. If, you, <clears throat> if we consider that he survived despite the fact that all Western world and probably good part of the Russian people themselves, if not the majority of them, wanting, wanting, wanted him dead. Let's go back to the sine qua non conditions of psychiatric illness, distress and dysfunction. If you come in for a closer look, <clears throat> the phenomenon becomes more complicated. What is dysfunction? What is distress? Dysfunction, or impairment in function, is a concept deceptively simple in theory. In practice, though, surprisingly difficult to define. In general medicine, doctors and patients have a slightly easier time in identifying dysfunction. If you have a stroke and you cannot move half of your body, that's a dysfunction about which no one can argue. In psychiatry, dysfunction is defined by its opposite, function. What is the function of the human mind? to ensure the survival of the individual and his or her kin. But not only that, you can merely survive in a variety of ways and some of them are considered clearly dysfunctional. As for example, making a living by robbing other people. So we must add to this definition the requirement that the survival must be achieved in a way that is accompanied by the highest degree of happiness for the individual and his or her kin, given a certain set of life circumstances. And this is where the concept of function or its opposite dysfunction splinters into thousands of unique instances that cover the whole spectrum from obvious to impossible to judge. At this point, there is only one option. 
we must keep our distance from the observed phenomenon or look at it in a dim light so we do not get completely paralyzed by, by its complexity. In order to define function, we need the following starting information. Age, sex, level of uh, education, performance of similar individuals in a given context. And something again very subtle, the individual's pre-existing life goals. We cannot judge how good a patient is at obtaining something that most of us want if that individual happens not to want the same things out of life as most of us do. For example, a graduate of an Ivy League college who is working as a cashier in a supermarket may be a sign of dysfunction, while the same job for a high school student on a summer vacation may be the sign of a good functioning level. If the very same Ivy League graduate works as a cashier because he wants to experience life at its harshest in order to write a thesis on the human alienation in post-capitalist society, then that is no longer a sign of dysfunction. Or maybe the Ivy League graduate feels disgusted by the arrogance and superficiality of upper-class lifestyle and feel, feels that he is happier among regular people although this situation seems to occur more in Hollywood productions than in real life. The stated life goals of an individual must also be taken into account. You have no idea how complicated can become such a simple judgment as whether someone is functioning or not functioning. So this is the first step in the diagnosis of an illness, establishing the presence of dysfunction. Now, if there is no dysfunction, then subjective distress must be present. And again, with the accent on must, must be present, to even proceed with the rest of the effort to diagnose a psychiatric illness. As opposed to medicine, where illnesses can be diagnosed even in the absence of any symptoms, just on the basis of laboratory findings, in psychiatry, with extremely rare exceptions, there is no illness without either dysfunction or subjective distress. I know I am repeating myself, but it's a very important point. Here I must make a reference to a rookie mistake that I myself I also made in the beginning of my training. If a patient functions just fine and is perfectly happy, it does not mean that he is free of psychiatric illness. If he is in remission, either spontaneous or obtained through treatment, or if his symptoms are just intermittent. That is why I specified a little earlier, if you were paying attention, that dysfunction or and or subjective distress can be either present or in the past. Subjective distress is also deceivingly simple. Anybody can tell you if they are not in distress or not, isn't it? Wrong! That might be the case for some of the patients, but uh, you would be surprised how many times people either do not admit or they are, uh, they are in distress, uh, sorry, they do not admit that they are in distress or do not know that they are in distress. I know, by saying this, I think I already outraged some far-right or far-left libertarians, not sure where libertarians stand, maybe they are different in a third dimension in the, uh, than the left-right political continuum. Believe me, my dear libertarians, I am not suddenly resurrecting Freud by telling you that someone may look happy on the outside, but this is somehow only a defense against a deeply rooted sadness. I'm talking about the instances when people say and believe that they are okay, but from outside they may appear completely the opposite. So the level of subjective distress should be preferably reported by the patient, but sometimes others 
who are very familiar with the patient may have a more accurate view of his or her condition, emotional condition, that means. It is very common in children and adolescents to feel and report no distress whatsoever, while parents insist otherwise. If dysfunction or subjective distress or both are present, then we can proceed to the next step. We now have to translate and summarize patients' words or descriptions into symptoms. If you thought dysfunction and distress are complicated, you are in for a surprise. The process will get suddenly even more complicated. There are hundreds of psychiatric symptoms. That means hundreds of ways in which the mind can break down or hundreds of ways in which the mind can deviate from an ideal normal range of functioning. This deviation must be intense enough, long enough, in a and in a direction that leads to impairment or distress in order to be considered a symptom. For example, sadness has to be intense enough, long enough to be considered a symptom. Otherwise, it is just a normal emotional experience, especially when patients' life circumstances can universally be recognized as sad. The direction of the deviation is also important. Intelligence may become a symptom if it is low, since it may lead, it may lead to dysfunction. But it is not a symptom if it is high, since rarely, if ever, a high level of intelligence is detrimental to the individual. The symptoms are imperfectly divided into global, emotional, cognitive. Global symptoms are non-specific and are the end path of multiple types of breakdowns, either alone or in combinations, as for example, general appearance, personal hygiene, nutritional status, choice of clothing, and others. Emotional symptoms are mood, affect, sometimes thought content. That means what the people are uh, actually thinking about their reality and about themselves. Cognitive symptoms are things like style of thinking, fund of knowledge, memory, attention, judgment, abstract thinking, and others. Symptoms, that means ways in which the mind breaks down, can be discovered by either listening to the narrative or the story uh, of the illness as reported by the patient or by examining the appearance of the patient, the form of his verbal communication, or by asking specific probing questions. So in order to diagnose a psychiatric illness, you need to know first what are the varieties of ways in which the mind can break down, and also acquire the ability to translate patients' reports into the labels we use in psychiatry. Patient may say, I am a failure, I cannot do anything right. This may be translated into the label or the symptom low self-esteem. Or you may hear, I sometimes have the feeling I am not myself, I am like someone that I do not know. This may be translated in the symptom called depersonalization. So once you gather all these labels, or once you establish the presence of all these symptoms with their accompanying characteristics, like duration, intensity, frequency and others, so once you did all that, you proceed to asking yourself to what pattern of illness does the patient's cluster of symptoms closest resembles to. That means that there are some standard descriptions of psychiatric illnesses to which we compare the real-life patient situation. 
Now, what are these standard manifestations of psychiatric illness? How are they established? How are they defined? Well, no different than how it is done in the rest of um, the medicine. A group of very informed doctors got together, examined a large number of studies and defined clusters of symptoms that appear to go often together. They label those clusters with a diagnosis, with a name that is used like a currency to exchange fast a large amount of information among clinicians or between clinicians and other interested parties, like, first of all, patient or his significant others, or conveying information to all sorts of authorities like insurances, employers, judicial system. These diagnostic entities are extremely useful, but far from perfect. This is why these labels do change over time. Since psychiatrists got into the business of systematically classifying psychiatric illnesses, there were four and soon to be five waves of major changes of the diagnostic system. These waves of changes result in a book containing a list of all psychiatric diagnoses called DSM, or Diagnostic Statistical Manual, currently in its fourth edition. This has been an accusation point against psychiatry by some uninformed entities who seem to ignore that relabeling, reconceptualizing goes on all the time, not only in the rest of the medicine, but in science in general. That is how science advances, in wave after wave of changing, reshaping, refining, rejecting old concepts, finding new ones. The idea that some people sit in an office or conference room and decide, like Martha Stewart, that this thing is proper and this thing is improper, is an aberration. As I described above, there is almost no illness in psychiatry without dysfunction or subjective suffering or both. Psychiatrists do not go around randomly slapping labels on people deciding who is sane and who is insane. No question that there are times in the past when psychiatry used to be stuck in fantasy land. But so was medicine, so was astronomy, and so was physics. Do I really have to remind you of such embarrassing moments of the past like the Raditor, a so-called medical product, in fact water mixed with radium, sold as rejuvenator. That was something that not psychiatry did, but general medicine. Or cold fusion, the claim that nuclear reactions can be triggered at room temperature, and many other dead ends of the science. There is another common misconception or prejudice among psychiatric illness. Having a psychiatric diagnosis means, for the public, the implication of overall lack of value of an individual, or even more, a certain level of danger in socializing with such an individual. Psychiatric illness is, like any illness, something undesirable. But by no means the presence of a psychiatric illness is a global negative judgment about a person. The same like any other illness, an individual can thrive and achieve remarkable successes in life despite the presence of psychiatric illness. People, for some reason, are often surprised or incredulous when finding out that many historical figures and famous people of our times suffered or suffer of psychiatric illness. Probably Hollywood as a city has the highest concentration of mental health providers per capita in the United States, or possibly the whole world. And there is no other place in the world with a higher concentration of individuals designated as celebrities. So let's take a concrete case to see how this diagnostic system works. A patient might come to the psychiatrist saying that, there is a, uh, that he is upset all the time. 
If you let them elaborate, they very often go into explaining the hardship of their lives. It might be tempting to delve into that area, but this would change the dialogue into a therapy, and a diagnostic evaluation is a very different type of dialogue than psychotherapy. It is an effort to collect information from the patient, not to give advice. Therefore, the dialogue must be gently and steadily pushed into a style of targeted collection of information. First, you must put a stake in the ground where the illness started. The start of an illness is almost never a certain day, week or month. More likely, you will never be able to pinpoint the start of an illness to more than a trimester of a certain year. That means something like beginning 2008 or middle 2008 or end of 2008. Next comes the question if the problem is continuous or episodic. And if it is episodic, which most of the psychiatric illnesses are, what is the duration, the frequency of the episodes and whether the patient is in the middle of a flare-up or he or she experiences a period of remission. If patient is in remission, do not make the mistake to declare the patient free of illness. Just move the focus of the discussion from the present to the time when patient was in a period of acute episode of his illness. Now starts the difficult part to translate patient's reports into the language of symptoms. Patients may say, I feel down all the time. I am disgusted with my life. I do not like anything anymore. There is nothing I can do to fix it. I am not smart enough for this world. Ever since my wife left me six months ago, I spend my time watching TV all night. I barely do any work. It hurts even to think. Sometimes I wonder, why am I hanging on to life? I wish a car would rub me over. Now let's translate. I feel down all the time means his predominant emotional experience is almost continuous sadness. I do not like anything anymore. That sounds like someone who is no longer experiencing any pleasure in any activity. That in psychiatric terms is called anhedonia. There is nothing I can do to fix it. That we label as helplessness. I'm not smart enough for this world means low self-esteem. Ever since my wife left me six months ago, establishes a stake in the ground, if not for the illness as a whole, at least for the current episode. And it also identifies a potential trigger, probably the most prominent stressor in patient's life. I spend my time watching TV all night. That is labeled as insomnia. I barely do any work means there is a decline in his ability to perform at work, in other words, impairment in functioning. The statement, I wish sometimes a car would run me over, what does that mean? Is called intermittent passive suicidal ideation. Passive in the sense that he does not want to do anything to cause himself to die, but if death happens, that would be okay with him. Or it would be even a desirable outcome. So, we have an individual who for the past six months feels sad all the time, anhedonia is present, that means lack of enjoyment in anything that was previously enjoyed, self-esteem is low, insomnia is present, has passive suicidal thoughts, and his ability to function, at least in his job, is markedly compromised. We can safely say, as well, that he is experiencing a lot of subjective distress. Now, you run 
this uh, pattern through the DSM-4 database, which of course as a psychiatrist should reside in your memory, and you find the following match. Major depression, which is described as an illness that causes dysfunction or subjective distress, that is not happening closer than two months from the death of a significant other, that is not the consequence of drug use, lasts for at least two weeks and is characterized by sadness or anhedonia, plus any combination of at least four out of a list of nine symptoms which must be present almost all the time. And these symptoms are sadness, anhedonia, insomnia or hypersomnia, increased or decreased appetite, agitation or sluggishness, observable by others, anergia, that means lack of energy, low self-image or inappropriate guilt, diminished ability to concentrate, death-related thoughts like feeling that one is going to die soon or wanting to die either by chance or by de direct deliberate action. So we have a match. The patient meets the criteria necessary to use the diagnosis of major depression in this circumstance. If you want to reinforce the diagnosis, make it ironclad, then you must start asking questions that make sure that all the little details of the diagnosis are met. That means you must ask if there was uh, no death in the family, if there was no drug use and other questions to rule out other possible diagnoses that would result in similar clinical manifestations. That means to make sure we differentiate the diagnosis from other similar conditions and prove that you did consider a wider range of diagnostic options and specify why did you rule them out. By the way, drug use does not rule out the existence of a major depression in the same time and independent of the drug use. There are ways in which one can determine with a good degree of certainty if the use of drugs or alcohol is the cause or just uh, an aggravating factor or plays no role in the diagnosis of major depression. I'm not going to speak further about how to make this distinction since it will be uh, a stretch and this presentation will uh, lengthen by another half an hour. Finally, you must make sure that the symptoms are intense enough and persistent enough to meet the criteria for major depression according to the DSM-4. Now, you have a good overall view about how diagnosis in psychiatry is made. A good question is, why is that so important to go through this process of analysis, translation and synthesis, which is the psychiatric diagnosis? The diagnosis is the gateway to treatment and prognosis. That means, once we determine what diagnostic label uh, we are dealing with, we will automatically be able to choose a treatment algorithm and inform the patient about what the future has in store for him or her, the so-called prognosis of the illness. As you noticed, I said choose not a treatment, but a treatment algorithm. That means in psychiatry, as well as in all the rest of the medicine, there are no certainties when it comes to treatment. There is no way to guarantee that the first medication chosen will be the one to stop the illness. Since the brain comes in such a variety of configurations, there is no way to know in advance with 100% certainty how a medication will, uh, will act on a patient. We know the overall statistics, the overall chance of an improvement with any given medication. And that chance is never 100%. 
in general, in all medicine, a medication has, uh, if a medication has 70% chances of improving an illness, it is considered a very effective medication. To be more exact, the efficacy is really judged by a medication's ability to distinguish itself in a statistically definitive manner from a placebo, an inactive substance, inactive pill. And not only that, this must happen under the conditions in which neither the patient nor the evaluator of a patient's condition know if the real medication or a placebo was administered. So, until, of course, the study ends, and then they will have to look at who received what. So, we do not speak of treatment as a single option, but a whole system of measures and countermeasures that we call a treatment algorithm. Again, I cannot stress this enough. It is uh, no different than how things are done in any other medical specialty. I have heard again and again the cliché reaction from patients. If you cannot guarantee that I'm going to get better with this medication, then I'm not going to take it. I don't want to be an experiment. My reply is always to correct the patient and tell him or her that we do not experiment, but we certainly customize the treatment according to the treatment algorithm. And this may involve one, two, three medication trials. So we do not experiment in clinical practice. That happened already before a medication comes on the market. There is also another important aspect. A diagnosis means that we know what is physically wrong with the brain. For almost all psychiatric illnesses, we have clear evidence that when a diagnostic criteria is met, we consider that a concrete chemical and sometimes discrete structural deviation from the normal brain took place. You might ask, why then not establish directly the existence of these chemical or structural deviations and forget about painstaking work of collecting information, analyzing it, matching it with a description of the illness? That means the diagnostic interview. There is a simple answer to that. The methods used in establishing these deviations from normal are very complicated, very expensive. And because of such a wide range of variations in the observed changes, most often the only way to establish the existence of a deviation is to have the same measure before and after someone gets sick with a psychiatric disorder. That means each individual is its own standard. But it would be rather impractical and terribly expensive to test everybody to establish a baseline just in case they will be stricken with some kind of psychiatric illness at a certain point in the future. So for the time being, at least 95% of the information we need to diagnose the illness in psychiatry will come from traditional means of observing and speaking with patients and people who are familiar with them. I hope this uh, straightens out some of the common misperceptions and misconceptions of, uh, about psychiatry, which is essentially no different than any other medical specialty.